Praise the Lord. All right, let's just pray then before we begin for this evening. Father, it's a wonderful privilege to be able to turn to you in prayer, to be able to come aside from the world, to gather around your word, and to gather around the person of Jesus. And Father, we do come with relaxed minds and relaxed emotions and relaxed hearts, because we know, indeed, you've got us in the hollow of your hand. Father, I do thank you for that lovely chorus, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And we thank you that when we're dealing with you, we're dealing with the master of the universe. We thank you that history is his story, that you are the one who framed the ages. Father, it gives us such peace and such contentment to know that you are in charge not only of world history, but in charge of our own personal history. And I will pray, Father, even tonight, that you will show us how to rightly divide the Word of God. Father, that we should not be those who misuse your Word, but those who understand the principles, and who, understanding the principles, then begin to enjoy the rich fullness of the truths contained in this Word. And I ask you to take my stumbling mouth. And Father, may it be a powerful channel for your truth, even tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. Amen. All right, now we're talking about the Bible. And re having reached now about halfway through the present series, could I remind you of the words that I said right at the beginning of this series? Do remember, in the first talk of this present series, I said to us all, up to this time, we've assumed that the Bible is the Word of God, and we've assumed that it is infallible, and we've assumed it is inerrant, but what we've now got to do is have a look at the Bible itself. And after all, you see, if you take the studies that I've done so far and take the series, for example, the series on salvation, or the series on judgments, or the two on prophecy, or the uh, series number five, which is on the character of God, they've all been solidly based on the Word of God. I mean, you know, we've been in the Word, and in the Word, and in the Word, solidly, 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 right the way through. But I said at the beginning of this course that really we've been assuming, haven't we? that this is the Word of God. And so we've actually turned our attention from doctrine onto the Word of God itself, and we've been trying to see why we believe what we believe. And I hope, after the last five or six painstaking studies, that you now understand why we hold to the position that we do, and I hope now you have enough knowledge to be able to justify your own position. The Bible says you've got to be ready to give an answer to every man concerning the hope that is within you, and I hope you can do that. The last uh, study in this series, which I hope you remember, was one called How to Study the Bible for Yourself. And having studied the Word of God itself, I then thought it would be good if I could give a few hints as to how to study the Word itself. And I hope some of you have uh, actually got your teeth into the Word since that particular study. May I remind you again that the Bible does say, be a doer of the Word, not a hearer only, deceiving yourselves. And I hope some of you now are really getting deeply into the things of God. Now, what I want to do is take one statement that I made in the last study in this series, and I want to use it as the base for the, the next three studies. 
For one of the things I said towards the end of the last talk was this. When you are studying the Bible, one of the things you've got to do is to be able to place what part of history that particular verse is speaking about. And do you remember, to help you, I gave a list of over 20 things that, to me, were the main events in human history. We began with the creation, we went on to the fall. Do you remember that? We went right down through, the, through Noah's flood, down to the Exodus, straight on to the birth of Christ, straight on to the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ. Do you remember all of these things? We went straight on then to the millennium and on to the eternal state. Now, I did that so that as you're reading the Bible, you might actually look at that particular chart and say, now, here's a verse. I don't quite understand what it means. What part of history is it actually referring to? This is something you have to do whenever you study history. And after all, the Bible is a historical document. Do you know that? It's history, history, history. More and more and more and more history. You just have to read Chronicles and then Kings. As if you haven't got enough in 1 and 2 Samuel, you've got 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. It's history, history, history. And one of the things you have to do with history is get a framework, a framework of time on which to base the historical facts you're dealing with. Do you know that that's true? Time is the backbone, really, of the study of history. Without time, history becomes a meaningless jumble of facts. You know, one of the things you do when you study um, uh, British history is you understand the overall framework of the history. I mean, you've got to know approximately when the Romans were. You've got to know when the Saxons came, when the Normans came, the Plantagenets, the Tudors, the Stuarts, and all the others. You've got to have some idea. If you don't, it's absolutely useless uh, going along and reading an incident that happened during the Wars of the Roses or trying to read up a particular battle when you don't know what's been going on. I mean, who are the sides? What's the political setup at that time? You've got to do it. Now, in the Bible, you've got to do the same. You must have a working knowledge of the framework of time given in the Bible. Now, there are several ways of doing this. The early church had a very simple scheme indeed. Uh, they simply saw... Um, the creation week as the pattern for all of human history. Those of you who have actually uh, heard the tapes on chronology will know this is true. What they said was this, well, God created for six days and then he rested the seventh day. And they said, well, we reckon that on that basis, the whole of human history will be cut up like this. There'll be 6,000 years of human history and then there'll be a 1,000 years during which the earth rests. And that was the early church's concept of history. And by the way, it's one that I think is, is absolutely valid. I've uh, sketched it out for you so that you can understand exactly what they did say. There we are. You've got 6,000 years followed by 1,000 years. And they said that was the framework of history. And certainly this is the framework of history that the Bible follows if you take it literally. Um, we can space this out even more, beginning with creation at this end. After 2,000 years, you come to the birth of Abraham. So, that's creation, 2,000 years, Abraham. Go on another 2,000 years, you come to Jesus Christ here. So Jesus Christ was 4,000 years from the creation. And you remember, don't you, that as the lamb, the Passover lamb, he had to be put aside for four days before he was slain. And four days, 4,000 years from the very beginning. 
Then you have another 2,000 years, right, according to this pattern, which we're still living through. We're about 1,900 and, what, 50 years through it, something like that. And then finally, when history comes to an end here, there'll be a 1,000 years when Christ reigns on the earth. May I warn you, by the way, you can't work out the date of the Lord's coming from that. And some people have. Some people are sure he's coming in the year 2000, right? Do you know that in the year 1000, many people thought he was coming then, you know? And, they were, and you'll find that there was a spate of church building just before the year 1000, because they thought, well, we better do something religious so that we're ready by the time he comes. So lots and lots and lots of churches suddenly appeared. You know, there were some in Sussex. Many of the Saxon churches were built for that reason, because they thought Jesus was coming. And in the chronology tapes, I warn you about that, because notice on that chart, I haven't specified how long the years are. I mean, are they Jewish years or are they Gentile years? What type of years do we mean? Well, it's a bit complicated, you see, so don't try and work anything funny out just using that. You don't have to do it. But that was their simple pattern of history. We could use that pattern, and I could certainly do a detailed analysis through. But I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do is to study the history of the Bible using what are called dispensations. And we're going to find that actually it comes to a very similar framework to that. But in fact, we're coming in from a different angle. Now, I know that gives a lot of people in this room a lot of problems. In fact, it gives a lot of Christians a lot of problems because the vast majority of Christians today don't know what the word dispensation actually means. Well, it's a good biblical word. I mean, it really is used in the Bible. It's used several times in the book of Ephesians, the dispensation of the grace of God. And so it is time that we did understand what this word means. And once we understand it, then we can begin to see how we can approach the Bible from a dispensational point of view. Let's have a look at the word. Well, it's a Greek word. And needless to say, the Greek word is nothing like our word dispensations. Oikoinomia. There it is. O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-A. Oikoinomia is the word for dispensation as used in the Greek. And you know, don't you, that the Greeks often used to like to take two words and put them together, right? This is sort of language architecture. They like to do this. And this word, oikoinomia, is actually made up of two other words. It's made up of the word oikos, which means a house, and the word nomos, which means law. And they put oikos and nomos together, and they got the word oikoinomia. There it is. Law and house. So what does the word oikoinomia, or dispensation, actually mean? Listen, it simply means this. It's the way you run your house. That's what dispensation, a dispensation is. It's the way someone runs their house or runs their estate. We would use the word administration or management when we come to this particular word. King James Version uses another word. It uses the word stewardship. I think we'll turn to the Gospel of Luke, and if we go to Luke 16, we actually see Jesus using the word oikoinomia. I'm going to read from verse 1, the parable of the unjust steward. And the word steward or stewardship is our word oikoinomia. It's a form of it, you see. And I think stewardship is quite a good word. Dis a dispensation, 
is an administration or a stewardship. Let's just read it. Verse 1, And he said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward. Now this man was so rich, he didn't have to run his estate. He had a man, a farm manager, who did it for him. And he said to this chap, look, he said, I've got 10,000 acres or whatever his acreage was. He said, I haven't got the time to deal with it. I'm too busy on my yacht or whatever, you know, my particular pleasure is. You run this estate, will you? I don't care how you run it, as long as you make a profit in the end. And so this steward had to actually get an idea as to how to run the estate. And he applied a law to the estate, which was his way of running it. Trouble is, it didn't work. And then it says, and the same was accused unto him that he wasted his goods. Someone came and said, look, that chap you put in charge of your farm. I mean, really, he's got nothing between his ears, that fellow. And uh, the person said, really, he's wasting your money. He won't make any profit for you. He hasn't got the first idea. And so the man comes along and he called him and said to him, how is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship. I want to know what law you've used and is it working? For thou mayest no, be, no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself and so the story goes on. Now that's our word oikonomia, right? So a, a dispensation is an administration or a stewardship. By the way, we get an English word from this, don't we? We get the word oikonomia, ekonomia, economy is actually from this word. And the economy is the way the country is run, right? It's according to whether it's monetarist policies or socialist policies or liberal policies or SDP policies, but they've all got their rules that they apply. And what you can say is at the moment we're under the dispensation of Maggie Thatcher. That's what we're doing. She's the one laying down the rules and she's running the country and some think it's good and some think it's bad. Uh, if she is thrown out at the next election and Kinnock gets in, then we'll have Keynesian ideas and we'll have the dispensation of Keynes, right, who was an economist, as you know. And that will be different again. I don't know what the others will do, but they'll do a mixture of the two, probably, you see. Now, that's what we mean by a dispensation. By the way, you apply laws, don't you, when you run your household. I've never been into two houses that are exactly the same. We all have the basic idea, and that is there ought to be basic cleanliness, basic order, and that our income should exceed our expenditure. I mean, that's the basic rule, isn't it? That's the dispensation we try and apply. To see me afterwards if it's not working. But I mean, uh, and I'll share my problems with you. Um, that's the sort of rule that we apply, and most people have that. But you know, as I go from house to house, I find there are very definite differences in dispensations. <clears throat> I mean, people run their houses differently. And some, you know, you go in some people's houses, and it's immaculate. I mean, nothing is out of place. You don't know where to put this dirty teacup. The woman looks at you as if it's a dirty teacup and instantly is whisked away and into the bowl and the bowl's wiped out and the surfaces are wiped down. Other people you go in and there's the breakfast things piled on the side. <laughs> and the woman says, well, I like to do it in one job lot, you know, just after lunch or something. That's a different dispensation, different way of running your house. Sometimes I go to houses and this happens. We're talking about the Lord and suddenly the wife says, well, it's up the wooden stairs for me now. It's 11 o'clock or half past seven or whatever time she goes to bed and she pops off and then the gentleman and I 
are there and we talk about the Lord and then at midnight I say, well, it's, I think I'll go to bed now. Okay, he says. And then immediately, he's straight to the kitchen, he starts laying the breakfast table. And he puts all the knives and forks out and, and all the things around and that's ready for his dear wife in the morning. How many of you have a house that's run under that sort of economy? Would you put your hands up here? Oh, I am disappointed. <laughs> Most of us don't run our houses like that, do we? Most of us sort of get to bed bleary-eyed. And then first thing in the morning, there's a mad dash as we try and get the children ready and lay the table and get the breakfast cooked. But we all have our particular way of running it. More than that, we have a different dispensation according to the season. I mean, most of us run our houses slightly differently in the winter to the way we run them in the summer. There are similarities between the two. I mean, still, expenditure shouldn't actually reach income. That should be winter and summer, right? Uh, you're in trouble otherwise. But, uh, but basically, there is a slight difference. For example, in the winter, you tend to have the heating on, don't you? You expect the bills to be higher in the winter. You have to budget for that, right? You have the windows closed more often than you do in the summer. The children dress in thicker clothes. They put woolies on and jumpers and things like that. Uh, you eat, tend to eat bigger meals and more meatier dishes. That's the way you do things in the winter. That's the winter dispensation, if you want. In the summer, you don't apply the same rules, do you? you don't, I mean, if you put the heating on, people come and say, oh, is that hot in here? You know, or they think, what a waste of money. You switch the heating off. You open all the windows. The children run about in shorts and t-shirts. Isn't that right? You tend to eat more salads. Now, the children sometimes get their dispensations confused, just like many Christians. And in winter, they come down in their bathing trunks and they say, I'm just going out into the garden. And mommy says, oh, no, you don't. It's winter outside. And they had got the wrong dispensation. Do you see what I mean? Now, that's what we mean by a dispensation. It's the rules that you apply in the running of a household. Farmers have dispensations. Uh, a, a, a farmer who looks after cows has a different way of running things to a sheep farmer. Uh, a person who grows wheat, for example, tends to have three dispensations in a year, don't they? I mean, they have the time of planting, the time of growing, and the time of harvesting. And I was speaking to one of our farmers in the fellowship here, and he said, well, there are two aims. One, to make a profit, and secondly, to leave the land in a better condition than you started the year with. And I thought, well, all right. He said, make sure you say that. So I've said it now. That's the art of good husbandry uh, ship, you know. I mean, that's the way to be a good farmer. But you see, during the year, this is what a farmer does. And he has a different regime in each of these. I dare to say he works harder in some of those seasons than he does in other seasons. Now, that's what we mean by dispensation. It's a different administration. Many things remain the same, but there are distinct differences as you go along. And it's these distinctions which are the important things as far as we're concerned. Do you see? And so if you can see that the way that things were done is slightly different at this time to this time, you're talking about two dispensations. Incidentally, in history, we use the phrase age to describe this. If you look at uh, ancient history especially, you can divide it up between the Stone Age and the Iron Age. <clears throat> and what you're saying is, life went on pretty much as it was, but there was a distinct difference in the two. One was the stone dispensation, the other was the iron dispensation. Then you've got the Bronze Age. We now live in the nuclear age. Do you see? Now that's really what we mean when we're talking about dispensations. 
All right, how does this apply to the Bible? Well, when you look at the Bible dispensationally, what, you are, you, what you're actually doing is this. You are saying that God treats the earth like a household. And as you look at the history given in the Bible, you can see distinct phases, distinct economies, distinct administrations in the way he's run the earth. Many things remain the same. I mean, some of the things, as we'll see next week, that remain the same. God's character never alters, right? From the beginning to the end of history, God is the same. The condition of man is largely the same, except for a short period at the beginning, right? Man's condition is fallen. The angelic conflict doesn't vary. You've always got Satan, you've always got God, and the battle's going on between the two. That's common. The way of salvation never, never alters. We'll be seeing that next week. Some people who are very confused biblically say that in the Old Testament you were saved by obeying the law. Oh, really? I see. By keeping the law, you got saved. Well, that's us all out, isn't it? Because the very first part of the law is you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. Hands up here if you've done it. Oh, no, they're confused. The way of salvation has always been through Christ in every single part of the earth's history, as we're going to see. All right? Now, those things remain the same, but there are distinct differences. And if there are, then you're talking about distinct dispensations. And these are the things we're going to have a look at. Next week, we're going to define what these differences are. By the way, our Bible itself testifies that there are dispensations. I mean, our Bible is divided into what? Two parts. The Old Testament, or Covenant, and the New Testament, or Covenant. And what that is saying is, look, there was a time when it was the Old Covenant, now it's the New Covenant. It's not a contradiction, it's a continuation and development of these two. There, that's what we mean. There's a shift, and we can recognise that there is a shift. Let's just pick up from a few verses, shall we, that this is so. Let's go to uh, John, for example, the Gospel of John. John 1... And verse 17, now here's Jesus, and he makes a dispensational statement. In verse 17, this is what he says. John makes the statement, verse 17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. There's a shift there. All right, actually this tells us of three phases. There was a time when the law hadn't been defined and clearly given. It existed all right, because the law is actually only the character of God, right? It is actually the definition of the character of God. But when Moses came, it was his job to give out the details of the law. Grace also existed at that, that time, but it wasn't as clear as it is today. But when Jesus Christ came, he made grace clear. Now there's a shift. Right? There's a development that occurs. That's a dispensational statement. Uh, Matthew chapter 12 makes one uh, dispensational statement using the word age. Matthew 12. By the way, in the way we bring up our children, don't we apply a different dispensation in every age? Don't we? I mean, a little newborn baby is treated entirely differently to a sort of six-foot-six a thriving 15-year-old. I mean, you don't treat them the same way, do you? Can you imagine putting a nappy on a 15, 
six stone, 50, 15 stone, uh, six foot six teenager. No, sir, you treat them differently. Of course you do. That's what this says. There's a difference. Look, in uh, verse 32, whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, this is the unforgivable sin, I've done the tape on it, I don't have to go over it now, whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come. Except the word world there is literally the word age. It won't be forgiven him in this age, nor will it be forgiven him in the age to come. He doesn't define what these are. All he says is that we've got this age, and there is a time coming called the age to come. You see? Now, there's a difference. If there was no difference, he'd say, won't be forgiven him in this age. Going on and on and on, meaning forever. He doesn't. There's a distinction there. Do You see? That's a dispensational little verse. Of course, it's in Ephesians, however, that we actually find the word dispensation. And so I think we should turn and have a look at a few verses in Ephesians, and let's understand what Paul is saying. Ephesians chapter 1. All right, Ephesians in chapter 1. And let's just uh, read verse 9 and verse 10. And notice the word mystery. Mystery is something that was unknown in one part of time, but was then revealed. And in verse 9, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, put the word administration in there, that in the administration of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And this is talking about a future time. He says there will be a time when the administration of God will dictate that all things will be gathered into Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. That doesn't apply now. The church is gathered in Christ at the moment. We're the forerunner. But do you know the phase of history is coming when all things are going to be gathered and centered and centralized in Jesus Christ? When? Well, in a dispensation that's yet future called the fullness of times. Right? That's going to be the law of God at that particular time. The administration of God. So that's a future time. The present time is called an administration in Ephesians 3. Go to Ephesians 3, verse 2. Here's the word, oikoinomia, again. Verse 2 of Ephesians 3. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you would. Now what's that about? Again, replace the, the word dispensation with uh, the word administration. Look. If you have heard of the administration of the grace of God, which is given to me, to you would. And what he's saying is, God has revealed to me the present administration of grace. And my job is to preach it to you. And do you know, God's told me about a new dispensation, he says. And we're living in it at the moment. And he goes to describe it. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Had to be by revelation. He hadn't revealed it before. You see? Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known. They didn't know about it in other ages. Unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. 
And do you know, in this age, both Jew and Gentile come together in Christ and form one body. That was unknown before Paul received the revelation of it. So he says, here's the dispensation. It's a new administration, folks. It's a new development in the plan of God. And my job is to preach it to you. It wasn't true before. Now it's true. There's a shift. You see? Now that's all we mean by dispensation. Uh, we'll finish it off in Colossians. Colossians <clears throat> chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 25. He repeats the same thing. Talking about the church. The last word in verse 24 is church. The church. Verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister according to the administration of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery, which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he says that's the key of this administration. There's Christ now in you, which is the hope of glory. This is a new administration of God. It was unknown before this time. Now that is all that dispensations does. It looks at the history of the world revealed in the Bible, and it says, can we see distinct administrations of God? And if we can see them, can we then define them? Now that's what it's saying. I think it would be worthwhile just to have a look at a little example. Now, we've seen that there is a firm difference that occurred when Jesus came. Before that time was the law given by Moses. After was grace and truth. Is there a discernible difference between the time that Jesus, before Jesus came and the time after Jesus? Oh, there are many, many, many differences between those two, two times. Let's just take priesthood. Do you know, before Jesus came, to be a priest, you had to be a Levite. That is, you had to be physically descended from Levi, okay, who was one of the descendants of Abraham. And if you were not physically descended from Levi, in other words, if he wasn't your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, you couldn't be a priest. No matter how much you tried, no matter how much you were good at theology or anything like that, you couldn't be a priest at all. But if you were related to Levi, you could. Does that apply after Christ? No. After Christ, every person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ becomes a priest. There's a shift, you see? Isn't that good news, by the way? Otherwise, most of us will be disqualified. Hands up here if you weren't, wouldn't be disqualified. If your surname's Cohen, or Levite, or something like Levitt. Ah, that, that might be our only one, you don't know. But you see, that's a distinct shift, and by the way, what did they do for priests before Levi was born at all? They had to have a different way of dealing with the priesthood before Levi was born himself. Be ridiculous saying, well, you had to be descended from Levi to be a priest. They say, Levi, who's Levi? Never heard of him, hadn't been born yet. So can you see, there's a shift in these things. Another quick example. Before Jesus came, the Holy Spirit was given to people for a distinct purpose, and then he could be removed. After Jesus came, the Holy Spirit stays around. Isn't that good news? Once you've got him, you've got him for good, which is wonderful. And through him, Jesus fulfills his promise. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, that's a simple demonstration of what we mean by dis a dispensation, you see. God is the one who is in charge of this world. This is his house, as it were, and he's the one who's framed the ages. 
One last verse on this in Hebrews chapter 1. This is all introduction. We're going to see the meat of the thing next week. And look what it says in verse 1 of Hebrews 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. He spoke by the prophets before, now he speaks by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the ages. Not the world, the ages. There is a dispensational verse. Actually, what I'm saying, I think, is so plainly obvious, most people never have to state it. It's obvious. And yet, isn't it amazing? People get very hot under the collar if you say you believe in dispensations. This is a rude word in certain churches. Dispensations? You don't. They don't believe it. The criticisms are many of it, but one of them say, look, if you see different dispensations in the Bible, you're destroying the unity of the Bible. That's what they say. You're dividing the Bible up and stop it being one book. That's not true at all, by the way. What nonsense that is. Could you say to a farmer, just because he has three different seasons in his year, you're ruining this farm, you know, destroying the unity of the farm? Of course he's not. I mean, I do have a winter dispensation and a summer dispensation. Okay, I don't, not like the Queen, I don't go to Balmoral in the summer and somewhere else, you know, Windsor in the winter and so on. But I have a definite dispensation. But I, I'm not splitting our family up. That's the way we run things. That's why Calvin said, and I have here a quotation from Calvin. Calvin answered this, right? He said, but we have dis different dispensations in our lives. He says, therefore, why then, he says, quote, do we brand God with the mark of inconsistency because he has with apt and fitting marks distinguished a diversity of times? I agree with him absolutely. God has put marks into history which show us his different administrations. All right, well, can we see if we can work out what the administrations of God are in the Bible. You only need an overall view of Scripture to be able to work this out. Let's just uh, have a look at it and see if we can do it together. Let's uh, first of all take the person of Jesus. Now here is the time that Jesus came. All right? That's the coming of Jesus. And we know, we've already established this, that the period following Jesus had many similarities to the period before Jesus. All right? But nevertheless, there were distinct differences. And so here are two of our dispensations. We have problems over what we call them. I mean, what do we actually call these? They come under different names. Let me um, give them the names that I'm going to use. I call the dispensation that follows Jesus the dispensation of the church, because the church is the main missionary base today. We're the people with the job of preaching the good news. Before Jesus, it was Israel who had the job of preaching the good news. So that's the dispensation of Israel. All right? Now, there are two basic dispensations. We would all agree, I think, that there is a difference between those. Different names are given to these, by the way. You've got the, uh, some people call Israel law, and some people call the church grace. I don't like that, and I'll tell you why I don't like it. Because if you use that particular uh, thing, what it tends to apply, imply is this, that before Jesus came, it was all law and no grace. 
And that once Jesus had come, it was all grace and no law. Now that's not true. There was tremendous grace in the Old Testament. And by the way, the law's still around today. Now it's a law that's inside of us, right? Do you remember this analogy? In the Old Testament, they lived under the law like a tortoise lives in its skeleton, right? Now the law's in us and it's our backbone, but the law is still around. Jesus fulfilled the law and the Holy Spirit produces the completed law within us. So both have law, both have grace, all right? So I don't use those titles. They're my titles, Israel and the church. But then we can develop it, I think. Israel began, of course, with Abraham. So before Abraham, there must be another administration. What do I call that? Well, I can't think of any title, actually, that makes it easy. So I've simply called it pre-Israel, before Israel. And that, of course, goes from creation to Abraham. Israel then goes from Abraham to Jesus. Then comes the church. Now then, of course, we've got a little problem because there's a period called the tribulation. I'll be dealing with that in the third of the talks on dispensations. Let's just leave a slightly larger gap there, shall we? I'm not going to deal with that today and confuse you. But then we've definitely got another thousand-year period where the rules change slightly again. And that's the dispensation of Christ. When Jesus Christ is on the earth, in that period, all the nations must go up to Jerusalem, right? And if Egypt doesn't, there's no rain on Egypt. That does not apply today, right? And if you confuse dispensations, you're going to have the most strange things going on. Now, there are the four basic dispensations. Now, Keith has very kindly done it beautifully for us, if that will come out. The dispensations pre-Israel to Abraham, Israel between Abraham and Jesus, then the church, right? Tribulation left off, second advent, and then the period of Christ. Now, that's the basic framework, you see? Now, that is as far as we're going to go today. I think that's quite enough to take in. Next time, this is what we're going to do. We're going to actually have a look at each of these periods. We're going to see the things that are common in them, and then we're going to define the differences. And I will actually be talking about the gospel in each one of these phases. All right? Now, just go away after I finish, which isn't quite yet, Go away and think about these, get the general framework, then next time we'll develop this and we'll see a few sub-series that can be put in and see what dispensations are all about. Because before long we're going to see glorious conclusions coming from this particular study and things that will confirm the things we already know in a wonderful way. All right, now that's as far as I'll go with dispensations, but that's not the end of the Bible study. For... What I would like to do now is to go through the three things that distinguish a dispensationalist. I mean, what are the three things that mark a man out as a dispensationalist? And therefore, what are the three things that mark a man out as a non-dispensationalist? Now, there are three things that we can define, right? I'm keeping a wary eye on the time. Three things that we can define that mark out a man as a dispensationalist. The first is this. A dispensationalist always takes a consistently literal view of the Bible. Now, I've dealt with this in other tapes, especially the tape called Literal or Not. 
a dispensationalist looks at the Bible <clears throat> and allowing for obvious picture language and obvious idiom takes all the rest literally. Right? Now that's the first mark. If that's what you do, you're on the way to being a dispensationalist. Does it make you a dispensationalist? But that's one of the hallmarks. Do you remember some time ago I drew a graph? Didn't I, if I can find a spare piece of, of this? I drew a graph, if you remember, that uh, looked like this. <clears throat> I drew a line, and at one end we had allegory, at the other end we have literal. And what I said was that all people who look at the Bible are somewhere along this line. There are some at this end who take it all as picture language. They don't believe Jesus really lived, he was just a fictional character. Uh, they don't believe in the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ. It's just an, a story to teach us things. Now, they're at this end. Along the way here, then, you've got those who think Jesus really did, was a real person, but, of course, he didn't do his miracles. They're picture language. And he didn't really rise from the dead. They're picture language as well. Now, they're a little towards the literal. Do you see that? But mainly down the allegorical side. And then you've got some around here who take the Gospels literally, Right, But creation is still a picture language. Jonah didn't really happen, and so on. I would say most born-again believers are on the right-hand side of that divide. All right, But they are scattered along here. You see, I mean, obviously we take most of the epistles and the gospels literally, but, but we vary as to how much, you know, we actually take. You see, a dispensationalist is right at the other end. He's as far right as you can get on this particular graph. All right, so that's the first mark of it. The second mark of a dispensationalist is this. He always sees Israel and the church as distinct. He will never allow confusion between the two. He does know that both Jew and Gentile are incorporated in the church. Yes, he does know that. But nevertheless, he believes that Israel as a nation still has a future. Right? A dispensationalist will never call the church spiritual Israel. They will never go to an Old Testament passage that deals with a promise to Israel and say, this is for the church. In fact, the dispensationalist gets hot under the collar when he hears people doing it. Now, that's a mark of it. And by the way, those two, number one and number two, go hand in hand, don't they? If you take the Bible literally, consistently, you will see a difference between the church and Israel. I think I'll give you an example of that. Let's just go quickly to Revelation 20. Now, in Revelation 19, you have the return of the Lord. And in Revelation 20, then, you have a thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, the people who take Revelation literally are premillennialists. They believe Jesus will come and establish a thousand-year reign on this earth. So when it says, for example, verse 2, he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and so it goes on, till the thousand years shall be fulfilled. And then at the end of verse 4, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And then the end of verse 6, and reigned with him a thousand years. People who take that literally are premillennialists. But are all premillennialists dispensationalists? No, they're not. They all take this literally, but a premillennialist also takes Revelation 7 literally. Now let's go to Revelation 7. 
For in Revelation 7, we see the servants of God who are sealed. Now, some premillennialists, that is, people who take Revelation 20 literally, look at Revelation 7, and they think that's picture language. So they read it through. Verse 4, I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 140 and 4,000 of all the tribes of the uh, children of Israel, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000, the tri tribe of Reuben, 12,000, the tribe of Gad, 12,000, Asher, 12,000, Naphtali, 12,000, Manasseh, 12,000, Simeon, 12,000, Levi, 12,000, Issachar, 12,000, Zebulun, 12,000, Joseph, 12,000, Benjamin, 12,000. Now, a dispensationalist says that is clearly Israel. Obviously it is. It's 12,000 from all of these tribes. That's Israel, not the church. A non-dispensationalist says, ah, 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 this is picture language and this means the church. So, this is what you've got. The dispensationalist here, right at the end, takes Revelation 20, literally, and Revelation 7. A little to his left, you've got those who take Revelation 20, literally, but Revelation 7, they will not accept as literal. All right? Now, I am a dispensational premillennialist. These are quite mouthfuls. You understand what I mean? Certain ministers in Britain are non-dispensational premillennialists. So we agree absolutely about premillennialism, but they are not dispensationalists at all. That simply means there are certain passages of the Bible they do not take literally, which I do. And Revelation 7 is a major one. All right. The third thing that marks out a dispensationalist, and this is much harder, and I won't talk about it very much, is this. A dispensationalist believes that the purpose of history is the revelation of the glory of the Lord. A dispensationalist believes that the purpose of history is the revelation of the glory of the Lord. A non-dispensationalist believes that the purpose of history, or many of them, is salvation. They limit the purpose of history to salvation, whereas I see it as much broader than that. I see it as the whole glory of the Lord. So, for example, a non-dispensationalist sees the climax of history in the eternal state, after the earth has been dumped. Human history was a failure, the earth was a failure, it's all been dumped. But in the eternal state, with a new heaven and new earth, then there's perfect salvation. I can't see that. I believe that if God created this earth and created human history, his glory has got to be seen in human history and on the earth. Therefore, I believe that the climax of human history is when Jesus reigns for a thousand years. Praise the Lord. And that thousand years is absolutely essential to the purposes of God. And I believe, by the way, the eternal state is not a dispensation, it's a brand new thing. It's not a dispensation of this earth. Now, that's a bit complicated. Uh, if I ever do um, a, a special on dispensationalism, I will actually go through that in some detail. I, for example, believe that the lake of fire, which is not salvation, it's judgment, will burn forever for the glory of God, as a constant reminder of his righteousness and of his judgment, right? Now, there's a purpose which is not salvation, right? But it is the glory of God. All right, now that basically then shows us the three marks of a dispensationalist. Well, so far, so good. Isn't it amazing, though, that despite the simplicity of this, 
Dispensationalism is spoken about in the most dreadful terms. I do not know an area of theology which has more vicious attack put against it than dispensationalism. For reasons that we're going to see next week, and especially the time after, but the attacks are beyond the limit, you know? And I always think, I remember Shakespeare's words, you know, in Macbeth, methinks the lady doth protest too much. And I think as soon as people have to make that sort of attack, that there's something else behind it. I'll show you the sort of attack. I've got one or two quotations written down. How many of you actually have been blessed with the Schofield Bible? Would you put your hands up? That's quite a number. How many of you actually first found your love of the Word through the Schofield Bible? Anyone here? Yes, there are certain people here. Right. I don't agree with everything that's found in Schofield. He was not a charismatic, as you know, and rather against uh, the charismatic movement of his day. Right? There are things I find difficult in it. Uh, He didn't know the original languages, had no access to them, and he made certain mistakes. But I would recognize that that Bible has a lot of good in it. Ah, but it's dispensational. That won't do. And Bowman, for example, who is a non-dispensationalist, this is what he says. He says, the Schofield Bible represents perhaps the most dangerous heresy currently to be found within Christian circles. Heresy? That amazing heresy. Now, it's beyond the pale. Uh, worse than that, Morrow, M-A-U-R-O, says this, the entire system of dispensational teaching, teaching is modernistic. It's the sort of modernist teaching. Staggering, because all the dispensationalists I know are all Bible-believing, born-again Christians. They love the Word of God, perhaps more than any other people that I know. Oh, no, no, it's modernistic, modernistic, all cast out. Funny, isn't it? You know? Oh, dear, oh, dear. And the, the, the two men who get it in the neck are, of course, Schofield and Darby. Darby is the man, the founder of the Brethren. They all often say, well, he invented it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And what they're really saying is, you see, it's recent in origin, and if people knew that, they'd throw it away. Oh, I see. First of all, it's not recent in origin. Justin Martyr, who lived just a hundred years after Christ, he had a dispensational framework. Irenaeus, who was one of the early church fathers, he did. Clement of Alexandria did. And by the way, I've got a quotation from St. Augustine. Look what Augustine said. Augustine said this 1,500 years ago. Distinguish the times and the scripture is in harmony with itself. Right? Distinguish between the times in the Bible and all the scriptures fit beautifully together. That's Augustine. But apparently Darby invented it. And what also they're implying is this, that anything the early church believed was correct. Well, that's a pity, isn't it? Because the early church believed in baptismal regeneration. That you were born again the moment you were baptized. Well, well, well. Oh, it's funny, these sort of attacks. If those fail, by the way, they then make personal attacks. I think some of the most vicious attacks that I've ever heard upon Christian teachers are the personal ones, right? You'll notice with me, I, if I disagree with any particular Bible teacher, I will state my case. I will say what I believe, and then I'll say why I think they are wrong. Never does it get onto a personal level. Most of the people I would disagree with, I would recognize as my true brothers in Christ, truly born again, doing a wonderful job in evangelism, in teaching, and so on. I would say I agree with 90, 95% of their teaching. Right? The vicious attack comes like this. Well, I, I haven't had too much of this, but one chap I had runs a small fellowship, 30 of them, and he wants to keep them under his thumb. 
and you know that, and the doctrine of eternal security or loss of you know, salvation is a super thing for keeping people under. And he likes to tell his flock, uh, if you leave our fellowship, you're going to hell. Right? By the way, if you're in a church that says, if you leave us, you will go to hell, get out of the church as quickly as possible. Right? <laughs> Rapidly. No one in our fellowship will ever, ever, ever have that preached at them. And if you ever do, please will you come and see me. I will deal with the person personally. If you want to leave our fellowship, we will open the door for you and we will pray that God will bless you. We certainly bless us. And so we'll ask that God will bless you. We will, I will carry your bags for you personally. There will be nothing wrong at all. I will not say that you'll go to hell. I'll say to you, I'll see you in heaven. Praise the Lord. That's wrong pressure. Now, this chap didn't like it. I taught eternal security. Now, he can't just say, well, of course, I agree with 90% of what Roger says. No, no. Suddenly, Roger, to his flock, is a man who's led millions into hell. Isn't that staggering? And they said, oh, you don't mix with them. They're on Roger's tapes. If you do, you'll go to hell. Isn't that I, I mean, I wish my tapes did get to millions. <laughs> Me thinks the lady doth protest too much. He's, he's, he's overstating it. And now, quite recently in America, do you know, having failed all the logical arguments, there's a book just been brought out, The Personal Life of Schofield. Cyrus Schofield. Did you know he was a lawyer? Did you know he was a bad man before he was saved? And by the way, did you know that after he was saved, he did one or two shady deals? That proves he's wrong. <laughs> now look, beloved, a, a bad life never enhances the truth, but neither does a bad life disqualify the truth. The truth is above what our lives are about. Now, it's just preposterous to do this sort of thing. And all you learn from the book is that Schofield was fallen. Well, 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 well. So there's one thing that is right in the Schofield Bible, that all men are fallen, including Cyrus Schofield. Don't ever get onto this personal attack level. The moment you are doing it, I would suggest you have wrong motives in your heart. If you ever hear me do it, please stop me immediately. The one thing in argument you have to know is that you respect your opponent. Praise the Lord. All right. So why do they get so hot under the collar? Dispensationalism is the hot potato. Well, I'll tell you why next week and the week after. <laughs> Praise God. And the conclusions we come to will delight our hearts and they'll have some people listening to this tape groaning. God bless you, whether you are delighted or whether you groan. Praise God. Father, I thank you for this time together. And I just ask, Lord, that uh, next time when we meet, you will give us clarity of mind to understand the wonderful truths contained in these administrations. In Jesus' name, amen.